Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead. Show us what you would want us to see from this section of scripture. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're Job chapter 25. Bildad is getting ready to speak. Job has declared that all people die and that eventually sin is punished in the previous chapter. And Bildad's answer in Job 25, starting in verse 1. Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, Dominion and fear are in him. He makes peace with it in his high places. Is there any number of his armies? And upon whom does, he not, does not his light arise? How then can man be justified with God, or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? Behold, even the moon, and it shines not. Yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less then that is a worm, and the son of man which is a worm? <laughs> so here we have Bildad's answer, and that's just the, he's, he's probably the shortest speech in the entire book. <laughs> uh, Job has been basically saying that all men suffer, all men, all men go through pain, all men will die uh, on this. And Bildad's answer is pretty, pretty simple. He goes, dominion, God's rule, and his fear are with him, and he makes peace in his high places. So God, he's saying God is in control, basically. God rules. He is, he is the, the, terror, the, 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 the terror or the fear and he makes peace or shalom, which we've talked about this being the case. Shalom is not just tranquil peace, but it is that peace with God and everything else involved with it. It's a very powerful word. It is much more deep. When we say the word peace, we're thinking, okay, we're not at war. We're not, we're not having problems. You know, we're not at battle with other base. We're at peace. And it's, this word is much deeper in the Hebrew. It, it is peace with God, peace with man peace with our emotions. I mean, it is an all-encompassing peace, much more than, it's a very powerful word. It says God will make that kind of peace in his high places. In other words, God is in control of all the peace. And we understand that as Christians. If we're following God, we have a peace that passes understanding. That means when bad things happen, we still put our faith and trust in God. We know that we're at peace with him. We don't have to worry about all the problems in our, in our environment, in our life. And we can have a peace that is just a tranquil peace that people look at it and say, how can you be taking this so calmly? Well, because I know who's in charge. I know what's going on. And that doesn't mean that we can we'll always be at peace. We should always be at peace, but we're human beings. We look at, by sight at what we see and we get worked up at times. We should have the peace that comes from God, but it, and I've been in the same place, you know, uh, and I'm struggling even now with some things going on in my life that says, you know, stirred up, you know, <laughs> you know, get concerned about it. And, and every once in a while, unfortunately, I do get concerned about it. I'm going, okay, God, I'm going to put it back in your hands. You, you can handle it better than I can. And then I'll go back and take it back for a little while and <laughs> then give it back to him and then take it back. You know, I, know, I know that feeling like, you know, that all of us have. But ideally, we should just put it in God's hands and leave it there. God, you are in control, and I'm going to keep it in your, in your position. He goes, and this is kind of interesting. Is there any number of his armies? You know, he's going, can anybody number God's angels? And I don't know how many angels there are. Believe me, I have no idea how many angels are, but everywhere in the Bible it says that they aren't numbered by our numbers, which means there's a whole lot of them. I don't know how, long, how many there are. We talk, there have to be a bunch from the whole world. Well, they go, I mean, they number them at 10,000 times 10,000, which has put you into the millions, and that was a big number to them. Uh, so how many angels that there are? I have no idea. The one good thing I know about the angels, only one-third of the angels fall. So there's two angels to every one fallen angel. So God is outnumbering the enemy by, by two to one. So we've got no problem with that. And he says, who can number his army? And upon whom does not his light arise? You know, who does not have the light of God? And remember, we've talked about this word in light in the Hebrew. It can refer to just the sun and the moon, but it also refers to doctrine and teaching and instruction. And so I think he's really getting on here because what have they been telling Job all this time? Job, you are a sinner. Why don't you just repent and, and admit your sin? So I think he's going more on doctrine on this. On, you know, on who does God's doctrine not shine? And we understand that this is a true statement because when people stand at the white throne judgment, God says they are without excuse. He says, my truth has been placed in their heart, number one, their conscience, 
and all of this. He goes, they understand that they have been disobedient when they stand before God. And how God does it, I don't know. The Spirit works on them, the convictions work on them, and they won't, under, they won't be able to say, God, I didn't know that I was doing wrong. And this is something that's very important. And as I've said, you know, if you don't know God's law, then you'll say, okay, you violated your conscience. And if you don't, well, I don't, God, I didn't really have much on conscience. Okay, you violated your, your society's rules. Well, I didn't know that. Well, you violated your own rules because we can't even keep our own rules. Now, we're two months into the new year right now, or going into the third month. How many people made New Year's resolutions and messed them up in the first month? I gave up making res resolutions long ago because I kept, I kept failing them, so I said, I'm not going to do it anymore. But you know, we, everybody who makes resolutions, very few of them ever last a month, a month or two months before they violate it. And they can't even keep their own law, their own rules. This is what I am going to do, and they don't even make and obey that. So God says, you're not, with, you're, you're not going to be... And verse says, how can man be justified with God? How can he be clean that is born of a woman? He understands original sin. All right, Bildad's giving some very strong statements here. We are born sinners. All right, and this is something that the world doesn't... Well, that infant was so pure and, and, and undefiled and clean. No, that infant was a sinner. All right. Now, whether that you know, infant's going to heaven or not, I'm not going to get into that whole story. The comfort is that he did not have a chance, he or she did not have a chance to, to make a decision for God. Then I believe God will take them to heaven because of his justice and, and, and right, you know, fairness. But, and David said that about the son, the first son that was born to him in Bathsheba. I cannot go to him. He cannot come to me. I must go to him implication that child went to heaven but that's the only verse in the bible that really talks about the possibility of a child <laughs> going to heaven now if you want to say that that's true where's the age of accountability a lot younger than than the catholics say at 10 years old or 12 years old whatever it is they say it's a lot earlier than that that these kids are making purposeful decisions against god or for god where it's going to be i have no idea i know for some people growing up in a christian family it's probably a lot earlier than somebody who's growing up in a non-Christian family. Because when you're raised in a non-Christian family, you don't really understand right and wrong the way that a Christian family would. Uh, because we are taught the word of God, and you're taught this is right, this is wrong, and, and you have an accountability. Uh, I've met some people that they've gone a long time, and you know we've dealt with it even in this church when we had some kids coming in, that they were living in a life that was so bad that they thought what they were doing was right. That's how bad their life was, all right? We've dealt with women who have been, from the earliest age, been sold to men so that their family could get drugs. They thought that that was a normal lifestyle. And it wasn't, you know, they felt bad about it maybe with their conscience, but it was normal. You know, we've had kids who were taught to steal from the earliest age. And to them it was normal and okay. Now, where their conscience came in, and I know their conscience had to come in at some point, I don't know. That's between them and God. But you understand what I'm saying. There's, there are certain people that that age of accountability may be a lot higher than somebody who's raised in a Christian, church, Christian home. People raised in a Christian home are going to make decisions at three, four years old for God because they recognize, I'm a sinner. I'm doing things that are wrong. And they recognize it a lot earlier, and they can have a real experience with God at a very early age. So he's saying, who can, be, who can be pure before God who is born of a, born of a woman? Who is a, uh, you know, that is born of a woman. You know, so we are born in sin. Whereas we say, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. All right? When I sin, I am doing what my natural inclination as a sinner is to do. And this is why I've said, I am not surprised when sinners sin. Which means, I'm not surprised when anybody sins. Now, I'm a little more disappointed when a Christian sins because they're supposed to be a brand new creation with God and, 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 God, you know, and the Holy Spirit in them, so they, they should not sin. But I know that I sin myself, so I'm not surprised when a Christian sins. I'm just more disappointed, and I'm really disappointed when I sin. Even though I know I shouldn't, I still sin. And this is what he's, Bildad is saying. People are born sinners. 
There is no such thing as an innocent person before God who doesn't have Jesus Christ's blood covering them. And so this is what Bildad is saying. Who can justify themselves? And this is an attack against Job because Job has been saying, I have not done anything worthy of this this, uh, pain that I'm in and the suffering that I've felt and the death of my family and the loss of all my wealth. He goes, I have not done anything. And so every time these guys speak, they're going, Job, quit justifying yourself. Admit that you're a sinner and just get it over with because God doesn't judge people that are innocent. And here he's saying that basically nobody's innocent. So Job, just admit who you are. And I do understand now, Job does carry his argument a little too far because he probably should say, well, I don't know what I've done, but I'm going to just repent of whatever I've done. I'm going to offer my sacrifice. And we don't see him doing that after the judgment falls. We see him do it before the judgment falls. He's offering sacrifices for himself and his, and his kids. Remember, at the very beginning, it would say his kids would have their, their daily parties at each other's house, and he would offer the sacrifices for himself and his kids just in case they had cursed God in their, in their parties uh, or done evil in their parties, and he would offer sacrifices. But once the judgments fall, we do not see him offering sacrifices. It's almost like he's struggling himself. He's almost to the point where, why didn't I go through all of that if all of this is going to happen? We've all been there. Why am I serving God? Why do I go to church? Why do I read my Bible if all of this trouble is falling upon me? And it's a very dangerous place to be, and yet it is the natural direction to go when we feel like, God, I'm serving you, I'm serving you, I'm serving you. I don't deserve any of this bad stuff happening to me. Why are you letting it happen to me? And we forget that he's sovereign. We forget that he may be trying to teach his lesson. We forget Romans 8, 28. We forget all the, all the good sides of the, you know, that God has a reason for everything. And sometimes we get that same way. And Job seems to have had this. Now, I'm not saying he didn't sacrifice, but there's nothing recorded of him sacrificing once the judgments fall. Before that, we hear that God says that he is. Now, God's testimony of him, he's a perfect and upright man who hates evil. And this is Job's testimony of himself. I, didn't, I haven't done anything worth, worthy of this much pain. All right? Now, he's not saying anywhere that he's perfect. Over and over again, I have not done anything that's worthy of this. What is this? All the pain that's come, come his way. So this is what he's doing. And here, Bildad's making this example, you know, his statement, you know, Job, quit trying to justify yourself. Who can be justified before God that's human? Just admit that you're a sinner and that you need a sacrifice. Behold, even the moon, and it shines not, yet, yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. So basically says, all of creation has fallen. Right? And this is something that is very interesting because this is understood by them even at this point. When man fell in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned, all of the creation was defiled. Nature fell apart. Animals fell apart. The dominion of man was given over to Satan and all of the evil flowed everywhere. We have storms and animals eating animals and nature being cruel and embattled. And, and uh, we've got you know, all the craters and satellites and, all, and comets and all these asteroids that are very damaging. And it's all because all because of two people caused all of that and in Romans we're told that all creation groans for the, for the dominion of Christ so this is something that is understood here by Bildad he says all of creation has been defiled Job how can you be saying that you're good and that you're just when all of creation suffers and then how much less man that is a worm it says worm here and it literally means a maggot and the son of man which is a maggot all right so going all right creation has been defiled how much more man and that's a valid statement because all of creation suffers because of man's sin so you know man is the prime mover of all the bad in this universe and in, in, in nature because of man's sin everything else happened and so this is Bildad's argument 
you know, how do you think you can be justified? All of nature has been defiled. How much more are you defiled than nature because it was all started because of man? All right? So this is his argument. Everything is, everything's bad, it's man's fault. <laughs> Very true statement. Very true statement. Now his implications are, Job, you've you got to quit talking, you've know, you got to quit saying that you're, that you're a good man because nobody, nobody's good before God. And you know, I understand this statement. I understand this statement because it is true for even us as Christians. We are not good people aside from being clothed in the righteousness of Christ because we have repented of our sins and asked him to be our Lord and Savior and he clothes us in his righteousness. Therefore, when God looks at us, he sees perfect people. But without that sacrifice, there is no perfect person. And nobody can earn their way to heaven. And this is what's going on. Now, these guys don't seem to understand that Job has been making sacrifices and from God's point of view, God's looking at him through the eyes and this and the righteousness of Jesus Christ who was going to, get, going to be the sacrifice because he has been sacrificing and reaching out to God and repenting of his sins and God's statement of him. He's a perfect, perfect upright man you know, that hates evil. How could he be called a perfect man? Because God saw him through the blood of Jesus Christ, which was still 3,500 years from the time that Job lived, or 2,500 years from the time Job lived. But God says, because my son is going to die, he's forgiven by the, by the sacrifice of Jesus. And this is the thing that I've told people. You know, they're going, well, before Jesus came, then, then people couldn't have been saved, couldn't go to heaven. Baloney, Jesus, God knew that Jesus was going to die on the cross. And from that perspective, he knew that he was. So they were saved by the blood of Jesus Christ being shed, even though he hadn't died yet. Mind-boggling to us, but God's outside of time. Jesus said, I will go to the cross. I will sacrifice myself. As far as God was concerned, it was done. And he said that before the creation of the world. So before God created the world, he had already saw Jesus dead on the cross so that he could forgive man of the sins that he knew man was going to do before he even created him. We have now Job's answer in verse 26. But Job answered and said, How have you helped him that is without power? How save you the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled him that has no wisdom? And how have you plentifully declared the thing as it is? To whom have you uttered words, and whose spirit came from you? Dead things are formed... Uh, let's stop it first, because we're going to get in this. Job's answer to Bildad is kind of an interesting one. He goes, how have you helped anybody that's, that's weak and without power? What have you ever done that has helped somebody? Because he's looking at him going, you sure haven't helped me. And he's going, can you even give me an example of somebody you have helped? And I've actually said something similar to this when somebody is being really obnoxious about things, you know, and they're, and they're showing no sympathy, no kindness. And I've asked them, have you ever helped anybody? Have your words ever helped anybody? And that's basically what Job is saying. Have you ever helped anybody with your words? Uh, and who, and have you saved, and, and how saved you the arm of him that has no strength? So again, what have you done? Part of this has been Job's answer to these guys in the past. He goes, none of you have even offered to help me at all. All you're doing is coming and condemning me for being a bad person. And I've said this before, none of you have asked, you know, offered me a ram and, and three ewes to restart my you know, flock or, a, or he, a he goat and a couple female goats, you know, a cow, you know, a couple cows and a bull. None of you have done anything to help me get started. You haven't offered me a servant or two to replow my fields. You haven't done anything to help me. All you're doing is condemning me in a couple, couple chapters back, he said, you are miserable counselors. All right? You know, and again, he went into that whole thing. You're not doing anything to help. And this is where it comes down to, do we truly reach out to help people when they're in need? You know, uh, James said, you know, you say, oh, be, be warm and be clothed. It's not doing anything if you don't actually give them some food and give them some clothes to be warm in. All right. Our faith has to have action, and this is what Job is saying. You know, what, what have you done? You've got all these words. And Job's agreeing with them. Remember, well, I've told you from the very beginning, Job agrees with these guys in their, in their doctrine. Do good, get blessed. Do bad, get cursed. Black and white, no in-between. Job is a prosperity gospel person, and these guys are prosperity gospel people. 
As long as you're doing good, you're going to be blessed. And as soon as you do something bad, you're going to be judged. So when bad things are happening, look at your life and find out what you've done wrong and repent. This is what they're telling Job. And Job is going, you know what? I can't think of anything I've done bad enough to have lost everything. Because you know, he agrees with them. He goes, I, I mean, I can understand if I go in and out and murdered a bunch of people, stole from people, and you know, uh, took advantage of the poor, that God would do this to me. But he goes, I've done none of this. I've been following God. I've been worshiping God. I do not understand why all my riches have been taken away because I know that when you do follow God, you are blessed. That's Job's answer. And we think the prosperity gospel is new. It's all through the scriptures. All right? Um, and he goes, How have you counseled him that has no wisdom? How have you advised anybody that has no prudence, no wisdom? Because right? Job has wisdom and prudence, and they're not able to give him any help at all. So he's going, you can't even help me who has wisdom. Who have you ever helped that didn't have wisdom? Because you can't help me. How, did you, how have you ever helped anybody else? He's been... He's been kind of uh, harsh on these guys on one side. It's all in poetic language, of course, but it's, this is what he's saying. You know, you're, you're not doing anything. And how have you plentifully declared the thing that is or sound judgment? How have you given sound judgment? Because he's looking at it. The as is means sound judgment in, in, in Hebrew. So you can't even give sound judgment. You have not helped me. You have not done anything for me. You have not you have not risen up to help. He goes, how have you done anything for anybody? He's being pretty harsh on these guys. And he has been frequently, but this one is very straightforward. You know, uh, he goes, and to whom have you uttered words or declared words? In this case, words of comfort. You know, they've given him lots of words. <laughs> They're just not words that do anything. And whose spirit came from you? Now, this is quite an interesting thing. Whose spirit's talking to you? Whose spirit's speaking through you? Are you speaking God's words? Or are you speaking Satan's words? And we know that they're speaking Satan's words. They feel like they're, from their perspective, they're thinking that they're speaking God's words. But God's words would have brought comfort and care and love, not condemnation. Is there a time to speak a hard word? Yes, there are times to speak a hard word. But it should come with much prayer, much concern, and after we've spoken the words of love and grace that, that have been rejected. Now, if you tell somebody God's word of love and grace and love and grace and love and grace and they don't respond, then it might be time to hit them upside the head with a two-by-four for God and <laughs> say, you know, hey, you know, you need to repent. But we start with the gentle approach that the Spirit has with us. One of the things I've learned about the Spirit and about God is he is very gentle in his correction. Yes, he puts me in places. Yes, he puts, things, puts me in hard places. But he's always there ready for that repentant heart to come back to him. He is the prodigal son's father standing there waiting for them to hit rock bottom and turn around and come to him. And he meets us more than halfway. You know, we make the turn and we take a few steps and there he is. All right, let's go. Let's get, you, let's get you the rest of the way. Let's get you cleaned up. Let's have a party because you've repented. This is not the way these guys are speaking. They're speaking with very harsh tones, critical tones. And we understand this. God is not ever going to condemn us. He is going to convict. And conviction takes us to repentance. Condemnation takes us into despair. Job's friends are going, trying to drive him into despair. They're not bringing conviction. There may have been a place for conviction here. I'm not, I'm not going to say. Job may have had something in his life that needed to be you know, repented of. But they're starting from the fact that God, you, you're an awful terrible person. Look how bad things are. So we're going we're gonna to hammer you with condemnation until you finally admit whatever it was you do, whatever you're doing in secret that we don't know anything about. That's a dangerous position to be in. We need to learn to give grace to people. God gives us grace. We need to be able to give grace to one another and just be able to express God's love. Now, granted, there are times. You know, when you're a parent, you might have to discipline your children and speak harshly to them, and that is correct at times, as long as you do it correctly. 
and you're looking at discipline. There may be times when you're dealing with a friend where a harsh statement may be needed. But has it been covered with prayer? And I've said this many times. If you're not praying for somebody, you have no business butting into their life and trying to convict them of their sin. Because if you don't love them enough to pray for them, you definitely don't love them enough to be speaking at them. All right, because that's what you do. If you're not if you're not covering it with prayer, you're speaking at them. You're not speaking for God to help them. Now, sometimes those come come across very hard. <laughs> you know, you're doing this and you need to stop. Can be very important, and it you know that can be under the right circumstances where we're at. And again, some of that is you need to be invited into somebody's life. You can't just walk up. You know, I, I saw you do that. You've got to repent. <laughs> they don't know me from Adam. They're not going to care. You know, but if it's somebody in the church and God put it in my heart to say that, then I would say it. Usually I don't have to. I've said this many times. When I pray for somebody, God either changes the way that I look at them to give me more grace or he changes them or both. And I think it's both. But my attitude toward them changes. And this is why prayer is so important for us. Because God will give us more grace and love to that person and let him do the work. Because you know what? God can do it a whole lot better than we can. You know, I'll mess up every time I try to correct somebody. You know, now, there are certain people you have to correct. You know, if you're a your parent, you have to correct your children. If you're the boss, you have to correct your employees. You know, if you're the pastor, there may be times you have to step in and correct your, some of the people in your church. Not as often as most people do. You know, and we just need to lift people up and let God deal with more of it. Because the Holy Spirit will change people's hearts you know, drastically. Verse 5 says, Dead things are formed from under the waters and the inhabitants thereof. Hell is naked before him and destruction has no covering. He, stretch out, he stretches out the north over the empty places and hangs the earth on, from, upon nothing. He binds up the waters in thick clouds and the cloud is, rent, is not rent under them. He holds back the face of his throne and spreads his cloud upon it. He has compassed the water with bounds until day and night come to an end. So we're going to look at this section here. Dead things are formed from under the water. Now this is kind of interesting because it should be the dead are formed or wait anxiously under the water. I believe that this is actually a reference to the, the flood of Noah. When the when evil was judged, and he says they're waiting for the judgment. They're waiting, they're under the water, they're under the flood. And this is something that's very important. For us as Christians, for followers of God, we die, we go to the presence of God. And the dead outside of God go to hell to wait for the judgment day. They are not with God, they are being punished right from the beginning. Now, they're waiting for the day they stand at the white throne judgment, where everybody who stands at the white throne judgment to be judged is guilty. Everybody that stands at the white throne judgment to be represented before God for judgment are guilty and will head to the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the eternal punishment and where the lake of fire goes and death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire in the, in the last days according to Revelation. And all those that are guilty will spend time in the lake of fire, which isn't much different from hell. Hell is a burning place of conscience burning in them, uh, in, in the, but it is not the eternal place. Hell is a temporary place waiting to be sent to the lake of fire. The way that I describe it is hell is jail waiting for to go to court to be sent to prison. All right, Except everybody who is, goes to hell is going to face a life sentence in in the lake of fire, life sentence. You know, pretty harsh. God's got one, one punishment for all sin. That's eternal death. You know, and that's hard to understand, but God says sin is so awful to him. And we as humans have to really start to understand that God looks at sin as awful. You know, we grade them. Well, I told a little white lie. You know, this one was, this one was just a fib. This was a whopper. 
This one, this one really bad. I was really trying to hurt people when I told them this one. And we, you know, and even as I say that, we, we grade the lies. And the lies, nothing compared to stealing from somebody. And stealing is nothing compared to, you know, murdering something. And this is the way we look at it. You know, these are the really bad sins way up here. And these are really low sins. They're not that big a deal. What does God say? These things I hate. And what's the top thing he hates? Lying lips. Lips that spread gossip. Where, where do we put those kind of statements in our, in our hierarchy of sins? God says, I hate this. And we put them way down at the bottom of the list. These aren't bad. You know, these aren't that bad. And God says, I hate those ones. Why? Because those are ones that harm people. Gossip hurts people at the very soul. You know, and I've said this many times, you know, uh, I tried not to teach my kids this, but you know, sticks and stones may break, your bone, break my bones, but words will never hurt me. What a lie. What a lie we have because people have been hurt by words and they suffer from those words for the rest of their life in many cases. How many people have been told by their parents, you will never amount to nothing. And some of them go out and become millionaires and, and heads of businesses and in the back of their mind is echoing their mom or dad's statement, you'll never amount to nothing. And if their parents don't acknowledge that they actually have done something, they still feel like they've done nothing even though everybody else in the, in the world or country respects them. They never heard it from their parents that they were worth something and are suffering from what their parents said. Or maybe you grew up heavy and everybody's going, well, you're so fat and you look like a, you know, you know, a fat soul, a slob, you know. And what do they do? They suffer for it for the rest of their life. Maybe go into anorexia and try to get so skinny that they kill themselves because they're so offended by the words. Here is the thing that he says, the sin is punished. They're waiting for it. And the inhabitants thereof, the inhabitants of hell, are waiting for that judgment. And he understands this. They're, the, the people that die in their sins are waiting for judgment. And, Bill, and Job understands this. He goes, hell is naked before him and destruction has no covering. Hell. You know, I have heard this said so many times that God is, does not see hell. Through the scriptures, God says, you know, David says, if I descend into hell, you're there with me. God is everywhere, including hell. I personally believe that he will be everywhere, including the lake of fire. But you know one thing about it? They're not going to feel his comfort in hell or the lake of fire. They're going to feel his holiness. And that brings condemnation there or conviction, in their case, condemnation, because they're long-term punished but have you ever been in a place where somebody is so spiritual or you feel the move of God and if you're not in the right place spiritually and repentant, it almost wants, you almost want to run from it? It's either going to drive you to repent or drive you out the door <laughs> because God's presence is so heavy and you feel his righteousness and his holiness and it's like, I am not worthy to be here. And you have a choice at that point to repent and put yourself under the blood and say, I just want to re rejoice in this. When God came down upon the tabernacle in the, in the Israel, the people got as far away from it as possible because his presence scared them. Moses went to it. The people, and there were times when Moses couldn't even go. God's presence was so heavy that Moses couldn't even enter into the tabernacle. You know, it is wonderful, and I don't know if you've ever felt it. There's been times in my life where I've just felt the presence of God so strong. There have been times in worship where I just feel like for just a moment I went to heaven because things feel so good and so wonderful. I come back and we're still on the same song and there's only been a note or two gone, but sure, you know, I'm going, I just want to be, yeah, let me go back to the other place. <laughs> let me go back to this other place. And I don't know for sure that that was heaven, but you understand what I'm saying. It was just so close to God that I, I want to be there. And he's saying, hell is naked. Destruction has no covering. The, has no, the, the grave has no hiding place. And he's now agreeing, he's going back to his previous statement, all die. 
all die. You know, you will face the grave. And then he goes, he stretches out the north over the empty places. And stretches literally means to pull out. The scriptures talk over and over that God stretched the universe. And it actually fits scientifically because one of the problems science has is that there is no heat loss anywhere. They go, it's even heat all through the, through the universe as far as they can tell. Which doesn't fit the idea of a Big Bang explosion, a hot center and cool outside. They're looking and God stretched. Just as if he took a piece of cloth and stretched it to its full length or had a rubber band and stretched it. This is the idea. He stretched out the north. Now, when we see the word north in the Old Testament, it literally means God's dwelling place. God's dwelling place. All right. He, he, Jerusalem, he says, on the sides of the north in the city of our God is where God dwells. So not just in Jerusalem, but the north. And the north is to the Jewish mindset where God dwells. Good things come from the north in their mindset and the east. But in, so he's saying God has stretched out his kingdom over the empty place. What empty place? Creation. Job is talking about creation in this chapter. And he says God has stretched out his, his kingdom, his dominion over what was empty. And he hangs the earth upon nothing. Now this is going way back before science ever understood that the earth hung on nothing. And the Bible tells us that the, the earth hangs in space and it's not on a hook it's not on pillars. It's not on elephants and turtles and all the different things we've seen pictures of. It hangs on nothing. Way back before, quote unquote, had a lot of science. But God had already taught man that the earth hung in space with nothing. It has been amazing that we have had to rediscover scientific truth over and over and over again. And even if you look at history, we see you know, history in the last uh, 3,000, 4,000 years, we see the same thing. Egypt was well advanced in science. They had electricity, they had motors, they had running water inside their buildings. They got conquered, and what happened when they got conquered? They were afraid of it. They thought it was magic. They thought all the technology was magic. They destroyed it. It wasn't until a couple hundred years later that we relearned all this stuff and what happened when they were conquered. It's, it's magic and it's black magic. We got to get rid of it and they destroyed the technology. It's, we've rediscovered things over and over and over again. The earth being round. You know, everybody goes, well, Columbus sailed not knowing the world was round. He was a mathematician and he was a navigator, he knew the world was round and he knew how big it was because math told him how big it was. The educated people, even back then, knew the world was round. Now the person who wasn't educated looked and goes, the world's flat, it, it ends over there. And I'm never traveling far enough to get to the end of the earth, so I'm never going to prove that it's not. But the Greeks knew the size of the earth, the Egyptians knew the size of the earth, the Medo-Persian Empire knew the size of the earth and knew that it was round. We're finding the history uh, as we dig deeper in, into their, in the things that they all knew this stuff. But the average person, yes, the average uneducated, uneducated person did not know the world was round. But anybody who read their Bible should have said that the earth, earth hung on nothing. It's, not, it's just out there. God does not have a hanger on it, <laughs> hanging it from a hook in a closet. It's just hanging on nothing. Now, we know that it hangs on the gravitational pulls and all this other stuff, but, you know, but that's still nothing. You know, it's still nothing. Um, he binds up the waters or puts con containers on the waters of his thick clouds, and the cloud is not rent under them. He goes, there's clouds. And if you th have you ever thought about this? The clouds are nothing but water hanging in the sky. And they're not gas. They're not a gas form at that point. They are water waiting to get heavy enough to fall. And God separated the waters from the water, you know, from the waters in, the, in creation. He said the water below and the water above, which probably just a bunch of thick clouds, heavy, thick clouds before the, before the Noadic flood. Thick, thick clouds, heavy, 
Maybe they were still somewhat heavy during his day. I don't know. Or he understood, he understood creation. We don't know. But he says, God has got a cloud up there, and, they, and the rain is not falling down from those clouds, which would be the picture before the flood. There was no rain from everything we understand before the flood. The mist came up from the ground and watered everything. God had a canopy of clouds to protect man from much of the sun's harmful radiation, and we were protected until the noatic flood. So, you know, not as much degradation of our DNA and, and, and all of that before the flood, which is why they lived to be thousands, hundreds, and almost a thousand years old, because they had perfect genes. And he's understanding this. He's talking about creation here. God split the waters, and there were clouds above that were not torn up. There was no, no water falling out of them. He holds back the face of his throne and spreads his cloud upon it. God's throne in heaven, he says, is separated from everything, and he has a dark cloud around it. When we see the picture of God interacting with man, we see the picture of the cloud. When he came in with his Shekinah glory upon the tabernacle, it was covered with a cloud. Mount Sinai, when you read about it, was covered with a cloud, with thunders and lightnings in his voice, but God often pictures himself hidden in a cloud why? Because man cannot see God and live. God cannot see the holiness and righteousness of God. When Moses asked to see God, God said, you cannot see my face, I'll let you see my backside. And he covered, put him in the cleft of the hill, covered him, covered his hand, you know, face, and allowed him to see the backside of God, and that still overpowered, <laughs> overpowered Moses to the point that his face, after spending time with God, came back down off, the, off of being with God and his face literally shone with a light from the presence of God. I don't know what that meant. I don't know if he literally shone or just the presence of God was so strong on him. But if you've been around somebody who has really been present with God, you can tell. Oftentimes you can tell and going, that person's been near God. This place has known God's presence. There are some buildings you can go into that have been so righteous and so much praise, and you're going, I still feel God in this place. If you, if you remember the movie Roar Room, the, the pastor that wanted to buy their house, he walked in there and said, this room is known prayer. And that's not an abno you know, abnormal hurt. That was a separate room that she did prayer in. And it probably would have had the... the presence and the feel of God saturating that room. There are some churches where the worship has been so strong that you can walk into a sanctuary and it's like, God is in this place. He may not be here now, but he has been in this place and I, I feel him and I know that he is here. And I'm not trying to get super spiritual on this, but there are just things when you know what's going on. And there is a point where we do want to understand that there is spiritual battle going on. There are spiritual things that are going on. And I even know in this town, even though we're not really there yet, this town, when I first came here 13, 13 years ago, was a very dark spiritual place. Still has some, but it's not near as dark as it used to be. Not even as bad as when I moved here. Yeah. God is doing something in this town and I'm not trying to get, you know, and all that, but, but there is a spiritual change in this town. As more and more people are following God and getting close to God, it is impacting the town. You know, I'd love to see a revival that totally changed this town. That would be wonderful. But this town is much different than it was 13 years ago. All right? Uh, and I hope to see it keep moving. This is what he's, what he's talking about. God holds back himself. He spreads his cloud around him. God will not reveal himself to anybody who is not in Jesus Christ to be able to be seen by him because we cannot stand before him with otherwise. And even there we have to be understanding that we're repentant and that we're, we're in the right place to be able to stand before God because we can't stand before his holiness without being impacted. <clears throat> even when we are right with God, his holiness can wipe us out if we're not careful. And he can overpower us with his righteousness and his holiness. If we're not, you know, if we're not uh, really there with him and he all of a sudden shows his power, we might just fall flat on our face and, you know, and 
and go, I can't handle this. What happens when people see, saw angels, when God did appear for them, what the first thing they did, they fell flat on their face. Don't kill me. <laughs> well, part of that was because they understood you couldn't see God, and they, you know, but they would always fall flat on their face and say, I am not worthy to be here, because all of a sudden they would say, I am a sinner. I can't even stand in the perfect righteous holiness of God and know what's going on without, without. And so here he's saying God hides himself. He that compasses the water with bounds until the day and the night come to an end, he goes, he is going to continue to put limits on water. We have the, the, the lakes, the oceans and everything that do not go past their bounds other than small floods, but God still holds those. And it's an amazing thing when you think about it. Why do lakes and, and seas stay where they're supposed to stay? You know, water always flows to the lowest point. So you've got rivers flowing into the, the oceans and stuff. Why don't the waters from the oceans flow, just keep flowing back up the lakes and the rivers? Who knows? God bounds them. God puts their bounds. And he says, this will be true until night and day end. There's a lot of these verses that say that things are going to continue the way they are until God stops it with the night and day without the seasons and all this stuff. You know, when people try to worry us, well, we're going to fall apart, uh, we're going to run out of this, we're going to run out of this, we're going to do this, and man's going to destroy this, and man's going to destroy that. I'm going, you know what? We have the millennial kingdom coming. There has to be something for God to work with, so man's not going to blow up the earth with nuclear weapons. Now, now there may, I'm not going to say nuclear weapons won't get used, but the whole world is not going to be destroyed by nuclear weapons. The whole world is not going to freeze to death because of, of global warming or warm itself to death. <laughs> Either direction. What are we on? Climate change now. We're just bouncing back and forth on climate change. Well, that's God's judgment as far as I'm concerned of that because God uses weather and has used weather always. This world is not going to be destroyed by man. We can mess it up maybe, we can do some damage to it, but it is not going to be destroyed by man because God's not going to let it be destroyed by man. And we just need to be able to hold on to that. Hold on to that truth that we are in God's hands and God has a plan. He goes, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his reproof. Now this is one where people go, well see the earth, you know, they, they, all of a sudden we just said the earth hangs on nothing and go the pillars of heaven so therefore God's put the earth on pillars. No, he's saying the pillars of heaven. The strength the, of heaven. What God has had in heaven is what he's talking about now, not the earth. And he's not even saying heaven is on pillars. He says the pillars of heaven. So the, the temple, the cloud, you know, whatever is in heaven and God pictures a throne in heaven. You know, he pictures a throne room. He pictures all kinds of things in heaven. So the, the throne room of heaven tremble and are astonished at his reproof. Can you imagine? I can picture man being astonished at the reproof of God. But he says his reproof astonishes heaven. Even heaven is, un, is understood, doesn't understand reproof. And a part of this I understand. The angels at least at this day and age, have no chance of repentance. They fell and they cannot be repented, cannot repent, which is why I believe there's a previous, previous time for the angels, that they had a time when they fell and, and had a chance for repentance and their time is over. They don't understand. When they look at what's going on in this world, they don't understand how man can be forgiven. They don't understand why Jesus would come and die for man. I don't understand why Jesus would come and die for man, much less the angels. Because they're standing before the righteousness and holiness of God, knowing that man should be crushed, and yet God loves them enough to send himself to die for them to be redeemed. They don't understand it. You know, and I don't understand it myself. I don't understand why God loves us enough that he came to this world to die for us when we don't deserve it. They don't understand it either. They're astonished at his reproof as it's his correction. He divides the sea with his power and by his understanding he smites through the proud. 
By his spirit he has garnished the heavens, and his hand has formed the crooked serpent. Lo, these are parts of his ways, but how little a portion is heard of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand it? He said he divides the sea by his power. What did he do when he created the earth? He divided the sea and brought land. What power does God have? You know, none of us could divide the sea you know, uh, to create land. He divided the Red Sea and let them walk, walk on land. He divided the, the Jordan River and let them walk on dry land, you know, which was nothing compared to you know, dividing the whole sea and, and bringing, bringing continents into existence. You know, and he says he's done all of this, and by his understanding, he, uh, he smites, he shatters the proud. God breaks the proud. This is something that we need to be so careful of. If we have any leaning toward pride, God can come in and he can make sure that he breaks the proud. What was, what was Lucifer's sin? Pride. I will be like the Most High. I will sit upon the seat of the north. You know, he was proud. And God judged his pride and brought him low. Pride comes before destruction. God will always break the proud. And you know, they, may, they may be too proud to show that they've been broken, but a lot of times if you really get to know some of these people that have a lot of pride, you'll find out how really insecure they are and how they are really broken inside because they know they're not what, they, what they're showing to other people because God brings them down. And God will always bring down the pride, proud. He says, by his spirit, he has garnished the heavens. We're still, in, we're still in a picture of the creation. What did God garnish the heavens with? Stars, planets, galaxies. You know, why did he put them there? Just to show off. I think maybe there's some other reason for it, but you know, he garnished. What do you garnish? You know, when you're in the restaurant, you garnish your plate with some... With some uh, Parsley, parsley or kale or, you know, what is it there for? Nothing. Just to make it look pretty. He garnished the heavens. He sprinkled beauty in the heavens. For, if you really take that word at its meaning, he garnished the heavens. So they're just there for no reason. Other than, I just want to make it look pretty. You know, I thought about that when I was reading it. I garnished the heaven. You know, yes. Put the stars out there. Just because. Just because I could. So that you'd have something to look at. And then he says, and has formed the crooked serpent. What is the crooked serpent? It's the constellation Hydra. 17 stars across almost the entire sky and is a crooked serpent across the sky. It is the great serpent of the sky with all the ramifications of that serpent <laughs> that is out there. The hydra's head <coughs> ends at the foot of Orion, which is a picture of Christ with his foot over the head of the serpent. I'll bruise your, I'll, I'll, the, he would bruise the serpent's head, and it's right in the stars that his foot is over the serpent's head. We are going to do a, lesson, a series on the, the constellations one of these days. But he created these things. The stars declare the works of God. It declares the salvation of God. The gospel message is in the stars that God declares from there. He created the stars to be assigns unto the people. Not the way astro astrology puts it out. You know, Well, I'm going to have this because that star is over there and this planet's over here, so I'm going to have good. No, that's not what the signs are. The signs are the gospel message is preached in the sky if you know how to go through the old stories and read it. You know, and it is so wonderful. And I am going to do that series one of these days. I've got so many I want to get done, but, but we are going to do a series on the stars, on the constellations, and how God put the gospel message right into the stars for people to look at. And they understood it back then. Every night, can you imagine sleeping under the stars and 
there's, Vir there's Virgo the virgin and there's their child that she's had and this child has got this and, and this is where God weighs sin and, you know, and it's not covered because of the names of the stars and you know, ending up, the constellations go from Virgo the virgin to Leo the lion, the conquering lion. And it's a wonderful story of the gospel message. And Job refers to the stars quite a few times. We talked about Pleiades and, and all of that in previous. The, the crooked serpent, Hydra, the constellation Hydra. He says God created the crooked serpent. He's the one that puts the stars in. He's the one that gave the names to the stars. And do you realize that every civilization has the same constellations? All of them which means that God named, named the constellations. It wasn't a man-made thing. Uh, God gave the constellations to man. Now, the stories behind them have been blurred, but the base story is almost always the same in every, every one of them. God gave the constellations to the people to give his story. And it's so wonderful. Uh, and it goes, Lo, the parts of the, these are parts of his ways but how little a portion is heard of him. He's going, he's just named all kinds of things about creation. How great is God? How wonderful is God? How These are just the smallest part. I've said something similar. No matter how big we think God is, we don't understand how big God is. No matter how powerful we think God is, we don't understand how powerful he is. We, we only begin to see the smallest parts of God. And this is what Job's saying. These are just a part. These are just a small part, a little portion of what God is. That we've heard of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand it? Who can truly understand how powerful God is? How strong he is? How loving he is? How kind he is? I don't care what portion of it is. No matter what aspect of God you're looking at, we only understand the smallest portion. And the longer we walk with God, the more we get to know him, we still only remember, know the smallest portion of him. I've been walking with God a long time, and compared to most people, I've got a great big portion of God, but you know what? I still only have a small portion of an understanding of who God is. And I realize that more and more. The older I get and the longer I walk with God, the more I realize that I don't really know much about God. And I've shared with you, when I got out of Bible college, I knew everything. I had the answers to everything. I knew all the great problems of the Bible, all, all taken care of in my head. And then God started showing me that I knew nothing. And I'm becoming more and more concerned, con convinced that I know nothing about God and I know nothing about his doctrine. Even though I know more than a lot of people, I still know nothing compared to what I, what I think I know because I can still study the Bible and learn something new. I still learn how much I don't know about God. And this goes to my definition of an expert. An expert is somebody who's beginning to know what they don't know. Because you know, before that, you think you know everything. You know, I've gone to the doctor, well, how do you feel? I feel wonderful. They start asking a few questions, and they'll go, that's not normal. I go, it's normal for me. You just, you just gave me an education. You told me that this activity is not normal, but it's, it's what I do all the time. It's normal. You know, I didn't know that it was abnormal until you told me that it's not the normal way of being. How do people come to the gospel? First, we have to get them lost. They have to understand that what they're doing is wrong. That it is sin before God. Until then, they're walking in blindness. Their conscience may be bug bugging them, but they don't really understand why, why they're being bugged. Until somebody comes along and says, God calls these things wrong. Now, whether they listen to us or not, it's another story, but... They don't understand until they've been taught that something's wrong. They don't understand that something is, is that way. They don't understand, and Job is saying, we don't understand only the beginnings of him and only the little portion. This is a man who's a couple hundred years old who's been teaching others and saying, you know, he just gave them a great definition of who God is, and he says, and I don't, and this is only the beginning. This is only the beginning of what we know. And this is the beauty of this. Do we really understand that God is so much more significant than we can even comprehend? And the more we walk with him and the more we grow with him, the more we start realizing he is just so much more than I can even imagine. 
And this is where true walking with him comes into it. How loving is God? Oh, man, we don't even begin to. We sang the love of God, you know. And I love that verse, you know, if the, if the, uh, sky, the oceans were filled with ink and the sky was all parchment and we were all scribes, we could still not fill the love of God empty in the ocean of ink. And we still wouldn't have given him the whole love of God. When we really start thinking about that, how much does God love? He loved enough to come to this world and die for mankind who does not deserve to be died for. So that we could go to heaven, which we don't deserve. So that he could love us for eternity, which we don't deserve. All because of what he did. You know, as his enemies. You know, it is mind-boggling when we think about the love of God and know that even there, it is only the littlest portion of his love. The littlest portion of his love. And that little portion that we understand is mind-boggling to us. The grace that he shows to us, giving us all that we don't deserve. And we're going, wow, look at all the grace God has given to me, and yet I only understand a small portion of it. Somebody who's been a terrible, awful sinner that gets saved, and you know, use that metaphorically or by human point of view, you know, mass murderer, you know, done all these wrong, and they get saved, they really understand the grace of God. Because they go, I definitely didn't deserve any of this. Sometimes we can deceive ourselves if we haven't gone out and done lots of quote-unquote big sins. You know, I, I was okay, but I'm really glad that God saved me. You know, but when we really start to understand even the idea of sin, how awful is sin in the eyes of God? No matter how bad we think sin is, we still only see the smallest portion of what sin is in God's eyes. And this is the one thing that I have been learning as I draw closer and closer to God is how much he hates sin. The closer I draw to him, the more I see of his righteousness, the more I understand how sinful my own sin is. And most people would look at, well, you don't have that many bad sins. Yeah, well... I'm starting to see myself from God's perspective. I know that when I sin, God hates it. Even if it's something nobody else knows, I know that God hates that sin, but he died for it. And it's an amazing thing. Job says, we only know a portion of what we know about God. And he's just sung the glory of God about his creation. You know, we understand that God is wonderful and he is great, but we still do not fully understand him. You know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It's an amazing grace when God pours out his grace upon us. When we know, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we did not deserve anything because of how evil God sees sin. And even then we don't understand what a beautiful message that Job is giving here. Lord, we ask you to bless this time. Help us to really start to understand that we really don't know you, that we don't understand you. Help us to get a greater knowledge of you and still not know anything about you, but help us to draw closer and closer to you and fall more and more in love with you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you, and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, but God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? 
Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.